when you have these very particular gendered roles that people are supposed to fit into, most people don't fit clearly into those roles. And I think that the way that patriarchal societies think of masculinity is often very toxic. Um, it's often very violent. It's based in that kind of that domination, that assertive, aggressive, angry, uh, kind of victorious, competitive, like all these things that are not actually qualities that are good for people or for communities. Um, when men kind of get boxed into that box of what a man is supposed to be, that's also damaging to them. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, sexuality, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how to move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off-limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, and writers in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. Welcome to Holy Heretics. Hi, friends. It's Gary Allen back with another episode in Season 4. I'm delighted to be joined today by Liz Jenkins to discuss ways we can dismantle patriarchy and free ourselves from a system that centers men at the expense of women while marginalizing anyone who dares to deviate from the white, cisgender, male, heteronormative identity or identity politics. And patriarchy is tricky because it can be both obvious and overbearing, or it can be subtle and so ingrained in society, we often don't even notice it. It's why most CEOs are men. It's why most politicians are men, why most pastors are men, why most C-suite professionals are men. It's why we have a gender pay gap. Patriarchy is why Ryan Gosling got an Oscar nomination as Best Supporting Actor, while Margot Robbie and director Greta Gerwig were snubbed in two major categories despite the success of Barbie. Patriarchy is also why the U.S. has never elected a woman as president. It's why white conservative men lose their ever-loving minds every time Taylor Swift is shown at a football game. And if you and I are ever going to fully recover from evangelicalism, we're going to have to confront, expose, and dismantle patriarchy for the harmful system it is. And thankfully, Liz is here to help us do that. Liz Coolidge Jenkins is a writer, preacher, and former college campus minister who lives in the Seattle area with her husband, Ken, and their black cat, Athena. Liz is passionate about building more just faith communities and a more just world. She has a BS in symbolic systems from Stanford University and a Master of Divinity degree. Her writing has appeared in Sojourners, The Christian Century, Christians for Social Action, Feminism and Religion, and Red Letter Christians, among other places. When not writing, Liz enjoys swimming, hiking, attempting to grow vegetables, and drinking a lot of tea. Well, welcome to the show, Liz. I don't know if you're aware of this, but we started Holy Heretics about four years ago, and our first episode was on patriarchy, purity culture, and power, and in particular how those three Ps that Melanie and I called at that point the unholy trinity of evangelicalism, how they all kind of work together to create this kind of system of domination and control and oppression and abuse and most of the time, they, they tend to center the white male 
at the expense of of everyone else, especially women and and people of color. And you've dedicated both your academic career as well as your personal life to the study and, and dare I say, the dismantling, hopefully, of patriarchy. So maybe to get us started in this conversation about patriarchy and its ills, its harms, even benevolent patriarchy, can you just define that for us so we so we all know that we're on the same page? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much for having me here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm excited. Yeah, I think it's so cool that you've been talking about this for a long time and I think purity culture, patriarchy and power is such an interesting unholy trinity and mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of other intertwined things that we could add there too, white supremacy, militarism, um all sorts of things, nationalism. Mm-hmm. To get to your question about how I would define patriarchy, um I would say broadly is any sort of imbalanced power dynamic that favors men um, and subordinates women, as well as people of different genders that are a little bit more complex than male or female. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of different ways that we see that play out, um, whether it's in churches that have limitations on women in leadership or queer people in leadership um, or both. Uh, whether it's, you know, churches that don't necessarily have explicit rules about things, but still it's always a man, often a white man preaching over and over and over. Um, it's white men whose books people are reading and who people mm. listen to and respect as experts. Um, and we see this not just in churches, of course, but in our broader world and the way that politics is often still very male dominated, the way that the U.S. hasn't quite been able to elect a female president, even though there have been some highly qualified candidates. So all of these sorts of things. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting um, being a white male and growing up in evangelicalism. It yeah. took me a little bit longer to see that this whole system was made for me. This whole mm-hmm. system was made for my benefit. And at some point, I was really repulsed by it because I realized mm-hmm. that there's so many dudes like me that were just handed power, that were handed sort of mm-hmm. the center of attention and the reins of either ministry or um, the organizational reins. And, and I saw this pretty explicitly in my last job and, and what will be officially my last job in evangelicalism. It was all the mm-hmm. white men were in charge. They were all yeah. in the C-suite and all the women who were actually the smarter of everyone in the group, they were in subservient roles or content mm-hmm. roles or or, well, sort of associate director roles. Um, how mm. has patriarchy impacted you in that in that way, um, in terms of maybe professionally or or even spiritually? How has patriarchy negatively impacted your life to date? I spent 11 years, basically my entire young adulthood, in a church that was very much like the environment that you just described. Um, a lot of white men in positions of power. um, And that was very explicitly baked into the rules of the church in terms of who could be on the elder board. And that elder board had a ton of power. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I served on staff at that church for a couple of years, leading the college campus ministry there. Um, And my my title for most of that time was a college ministry intern, mm. um, which was fine with me at first. It was a full-time role, uh, but kind of a temporary one to two-year one. So that kind of seemed to fit at first. But as time went on, as those two years that I was in the role went on, I started to have more responsibilities. And 
um, was basically leading the college ministry in the same way that other people with a pastor title were leading the high school ministry, junior high ministry, and different other things in the church. That world in which men are more likely to be pastors, women are more likely to be directors, interns, associate whatevers, assistant whatevers. Um, that that is very real, mm-hmm. and never really called like minister either, right? Like, were you ever given the title of minister, or was that also taboo? Um, I mean, in the church that I was at, I don't think anybody really had the minister title, but people did mm-hmm. have the pastor title for doing the same work that I was doing. Basically, um, I did eventually end up with a director title, um, <laughs> but that was at the same time that the church hired somebody to work with me in college ministry um, because I was transitioning down to part-time. And um, this was a young man who was many years younger than me, and it was kind of his first job out of college, and we were both given the title of director. And I think that was Mm -hmm. the point at which I was like, oh, this doesn't really sit well with me. I'm in my late 20s and have a lot of several years of ministry experience, um, and here we are. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not just about the titles, of course, right? Like, it's about like, is my work respected? Is it valued? Do people recognize what I have to bring? And in the ways that those things weren't the case, I do think that really impacted my sense of confidence as a person in ministry and affected my sense of self um, and my sense of belonging in that community and and my ability to do my job well. It affected how much access I had to information that I needed for my job and all sorts of things. Hmm. Can you talk about the role of patriarchy in the direct correlation of spiritual abuse and or legitimate um, physical, mental, emotional, and even sexual abuse as we have seen over the years? What, what is the connection there from your perspective? I think that's a good question. I think I was fortunate to be at a church where um, I didn't feel like there were those abuse issues that you often see. I felt like Mm. the people who were in power were very genuine, well-intentioned people. Um, Thus, you know, the title of the book, Nice Churchy Patriarchy. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a little bit snarky and also a little bit like I genuinely feel like I was in communities that represented the best of what patriarchal Christian communities could be. Um, Mm. But I I do think that all of this is connected, right? I do think that when you have those patriarchal power structures, um, you know, when people have outsized power, when they know that women's voices aren't going to be heard or believed as much as men's voices would be, that does create an environment where abuse is more likely and is more likely to go unchecked or just not dealt with very well. Um, it's a place where it's more likely that men in power will kind of circle the wagons and try to cover things up um, as opposed mm. to expose them and bring actual healing or justice. Yeah, no, I've I, I've seen that uh, in particular in churches in the past, as well as the evangelical organizations that you know I, I grew up in and was sort of groomed mm. by that the men would almost like a back room smoke room, you know, like, hey, mm-hmm. we all we all take care of ourselves. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned your book and the title Nice Churchy Patriarchy. And I, I it just kind of makes me smile when I when I said the word there, like, <laughs> what do you mean by that? 
and and what is kind of the subversive message to that to the title of your book? I think what I'm trying to get at there is that patriarchy doesn't have to take these particularly egregious forms. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of attention sometimes drawn to cases of abuse, sexual abuse, abuse of power, as it should be. We need to be talking about those things and dealing with those things. And I think that sometimes churches that are not those places where abuse is happening and being covered up, I think sometimes churches think that they kind of get a pass on the forms that patriarchy takes in their own communities. Like, oh, look at that church over there. Women here have it much better. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think what I'm kind of trying to say is that the more subtle forms that patriarchy can take and sometimes kind of fly under the radar or seem like they're okay, they're still not okay. They still keep women from flourishing and they keep whole communities from flourishing. Um, so that's kind of where I'm going with that, um, that patriarchy doesn't have to be this like hit you over the head, like so obvious, so clearly awful that there are more insidious forms that it can take that are still just deeply damaging to all humans. Mm-hmm. Well, and it seems like that one of the more insidious forms of patriarchy is this sort of Stockholm syndrome where other women are the biggest supporters and enforcers of the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. I guess I'll ask you two questions around that. Why do you think that is the case that there are women who are willing to subject themselves and willing to be seen as subservient? And then how do we potentially rescue them um, and or free them and allow them to see that they actually are being victimized by this system that they are participating in and and in sometimes even benefiting from. I think there's a lot wrapped up in that. Um, I mean, I think one place to start that I think is charitable towards some of the women that you describe and um, and, and it's real based on my experience of women that I know and love and respect. Um, I do think that sometimes churches that have these hierarchical systems and these systems where gender roles are very clearly defined in a particular way, I think it feels like it's working for some women. I think that there mm. are women who don't feel like that grates against them or like it limits them. Um, because maybe the way that some women are wired corresponds pretty nicely to what's expected of them in, the, in those communities. Mm. So that's that's okay, right? If that's the case, um, it, it can also be hard to sort out how we're wired, of course, from what our communities have always expected of us. I think for women in that situation, I think um, maybe there's some empathy building that needs to happen in terms of recognizing that these systems are not working for a lot of women or a lot of men. Um, and that means that there's a problem just because it feels like it's working for one person. It feels like it's not limiting. Doesn't mean that the community isn't actually suffering for these restrictions. Mm-hmm. You just said that patriarchy doesn't necessarily work for men either. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I think in the sense that when you have these very particular gendered roles that people are, people are supposed to fit into, most people don't fit clearly into those roles. Mm. Um, and I think that the way that patriarchal societies um, think of masculinity is often very toxic. Um, it's often very violent. It's based in that kind of that domination, that um, assertive, aggressive, um, angry uh, kind of 
victorious, competitive, like all these things that are not actually qualities that are good for people or for communities. Um, when men kind of get boxed into that box of what a man is supposed to be, that's also damaging to them. Mm. Yeah. You know, I noticed that in in my marriage, um, I was raised in a patriarchal family and religious system. My wife was was raised in a very patriarchal family where, you know, the dad was the head of the house. He made all the money. He came home and the women could not have a voice or speak out. Um, and it took us years to basically kind of realize that we weren't going to live that way, but we never really had the conversation, mm. you know, never really was, Hey, I'm the head of the house. Cause I just am not built that way either. I'm, I'm more sensitive. I'm more creative. I'm far more collaborative. I'm also mm. can be a little bit passive. And so the idea that I had to be the man of the house and, right. and make all the decisions was terrifying for me. Sure. Um, and then in particular, when I began to realize like, oh my God, my wife has incredible leadership qualities. Mm. She's strong. She's uh, aggressive. She can make decisions. She has opinions. And in fact, it seems like a lot of times she's just right. You know, she has this intuition mm. about things. And so we we never really practiced patriarchy or egalitarianism. We just kind of figured it out on our own for for younger individuals that are in a relationship or maybe just got married, even men or women, if they have been groomed in this system, what are some um, advice that you can give them to begin working on this? Because it's not just a theology. Like this is real, mm -hmm. real road stuff here. I mean, it's how we how we um, live our lives. It's how we structure our families. It's it's how we structure our churches. It's it, it, it hits the road in pretty significant ways. What what are some uh, advice or wisdom that you could give to someone who's been raised in patriarchy, knows in their gut that this shit is wrong, and they're looking to live a life uh, uh, radically different from from their their background. Yeah, that's such a good question. Sorry, I asked like 14 questions there. So I'm <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're all good ones. They're all good ones. Um I mean, I think to go for the question of of marriage and relationships and gender roles and how all that plays together. Um Hmm. Um, I feel like it's it's so different for every relationship and every couple. Um, so I'll just share that I think for for me and my husband, I think that we came into marriage very much on the same page about uh, wanting to be equal partners, wanting to be um, collaborative in decision making, wanting the the rules or the tasks that we that we play out um, to be based on what we're interested in or enjoy doing, or in the case of household chores, maybe, you know, don't not enjoy quite as much as others. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, I think it was surprising to me to find that once we got married and had kind of our own household, um, it was surprising to me to see how deeply ingrained some of the gender roles that are just in our broader society were in me. So I think it's a constant struggle both internally and as a couple um, for couples who have those egalitarian values to just kind of keep evaluating, are we living them? Um, if so, 
or if, if not, what's not working? What do we need to change? How is this working for each person? How does this feel? How does the division of labor in the household feel? All those things, I think, are just ongoing conversations. Because, um, mm. yeah, if we were raised in a particular world, we're raised with some deeply internalized beliefs. And even for people like me who didn't grow up in particularly conservative churches or particularly conservative families, it's just still like what we see, um, TV, movies, books, just everything in our culture. Um, I think it takes a lot of swimming upstream to work against that, but I think it's possible and I think it's worth doing. It's funny. My wife and I have almost, um, switched gender roles in in some ways and then in others we are kind of the stereotypical but like her uh, her dad is kind of the big fix it person and Mr. Fix it guy so if anything goes wrong at our house they only live about 10 minutes away he comes over and he and Jennifer my wife get the tools and they get to work and I noticed that I like I just don't know how to do those things I was not mm-hmm. raised you know in that and so I uh, tend to iron and fold the clothes as my wife and my father-in-law, you know, um, work on the sink or fix the cabinets or do the sort of traditional, quote, manly things. And Mm. I think at first he he really resented me for that and would make fun of Mm. me for that, frankly. And those just weren't my skill sets. But Jennifer has those skill sets and she likes projects and she likes working with her hands and in, in a weird way, I think we sort of educated him and in, in by modeling mm-hmm. that, you know what, this isn't a problem for us. We're we're a little bit non-traditional and in this way. And mm-hmm. like it's okay. It's okay for us. Um I'm curious, yeah. I want to kind of shift gears there and talk a little bit about patriarchy and egalitarianism from a more biblical perspective, and and I sort of cringe even saying the word biblical because I I, I think that that word has been so weaponized that oh mm. we go to the Bible to find all our answers about all the things, and I just don't think the Bible does that. However, the Bible has been used as a weapon to support patriarchy. From your position, um, from your seminary background, and some of your writings, can you help us untangle scripture? Um, in a way that actually shows patriarchy isn't God's plan, but egalitarianism is? Or or what is your approach to the Bible when you come up to those sticky passages that seem to point toward patriarchy? I think when we think about patriarchy in the Bible, there's the sticky passages, like you said, sometimes called clobber passages. There's so much nuance and so much um, complexity to how we read those passages. I think um, I tell a story in the book about a friend of mine from church who kind of, you know, unintentionally kind of accosted me at a church picnic asking questions about, I believe it's First Timothy 2, um, that says some things about how women should be quiet and should not have authority. Uh, sorry, how a woman should be quiet and not have authority over a man. Um And I shared some of the things that I've been learning about that particular text, uh, like how that word for authority isn't the one that's normally used. Um, And so Mm -hmm. it's it's probably not just any kind of authority. It it seems like it might be a particularly unhealthy or domineering sort of authority, um, or how the text literally says a woman and might have just been referring to one particular woman as opposed Mm -hmm. to all women everywhere. 
um, or the context that's really close to that verse about how there was a group of women going around and gossiping and spreading rumors and doing some non-community building type activities. Um, so it may have, been, may have been speaking of that particular situation. And so I kind of shared some of that because my friend was asking about it and asking what I made of that passage. And and then <laughs> he listened and then he just kind of goes, well, I don't know about all that, but you know, I have to take scripture at face value. Mm, which is a problem in and of itself, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Because there's so much cultural nuance to it and historical background to it. And there's so many ways that patriarchy was so deeply woven into all of the cultures and times and places that the Bible was written in. And um, so as biblical writers, I mean, yeah, we can believe that it's God-breathed and also that humans had some really significant hands in shaping these texts. Um, mm. And I think it's okay to say, like, these writers were very influenced by the patriarchy of their day. Um, and so when we see patriarchy show up in biblical texts, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's God's will for them or for anybody, and especially not today. Um, that just means that that was kind of the time and the things that they are working with. So you see that in some of the in the scriptures where um, uh, Paul talks about wives submitting to husbands and that kind of thing. I think it's really helpful to know that those were very closely based on some Greco-Roman household codes that would have been widely known. And so if you take those texts, you kind of have to compare them to those household codes that were circulating in the wider culture and be like, how are they similar? How are they different? And it turns out that the ways that the scripture texts are different are actually moving in the direction of being more empowering to women and more mm. moving toward equality. So those are some of the nuances involved in that. Um, I think it's also good not just to look at the clobber texts, but also to look at what real women are doing in the scriptures because they are leading, they're teaching, right. they're speaking, right? So anything that the scripture said that, that seems to limit those things, you kind of have to have to square that with what women are actually doing that was good mm -hmm. and that God worked through. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny, I've done some research on this and I've, I've read a book by uh, John Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg about uh, Paul and their their scholarly consensus is that there were in fact three Pauls in the sense that we have I mm -hmm. think seven of his thirteen epistles that scholars believe were only written by the original Paul the Paul that we all tend to reference the historical Paul and then some of the more conservative patriarchal texts and verses show up in books and the epistles that they attribute and other scholars attribute to like second and third Paul, sort of disciples mm. of his or apostles of his. And their their scholarly thought is that the original Paul was far more progressive, um, if we will, than what we read in the text because his writings get more and more conservative the older mm. and older they get. And I found that to be very encouraging because I've never really had a thing for Paul. I, I've just seen him <laughs> as this sort of egomaniac, patriarchal mm. dude. And I just kind of skip over those parts of the Bible because I'm like, well, mm. I don't agree with this and I think you're wrong. But at least that has helped me to reframe that. Did you study that at all? Or, or have you have you heard that argument that some of the more conservative passages that we attribute to Paul actually weren't written by him? Or kind of what's your take on that? I have heard that. And I think that that's really important or really interesting because 
yeah, it does kind of seem like in the time of Jesus and everything that Jesus taught and modeled, um, things were about as egalitarian as they could be within that society and time. Mm. Um, and it does seem that, you know, in the very earliest churches, women were serving and leading freely in whatever ways God had gifted them to do so. And then you do see this kind of this tightening or closing or this kind of like, oh, maybe we don't want to offend the broader culture by having women mm-hmm. lead that kind of thing. And um, yeah, I do think that that's a movement that you see in scripture um, as the texts get later on in terms of when they were written. Um, and I think it's a movement that you see, unfortunately, repeated throughout history, right? Like there's been different um, denominations or movements where for a time, women have been free to lead Um and have been really valued and considered as men's equals. And then, you know, some of the structures get built and things calcify and solidify and men make rules and enforce (laughs) those rules. And yeah, I think that's kind of a repeated pattern that you see. And um, yeah, so I think think paying attention to the ways that God's spirit is moving in those times of freedom is really powerful. Yeah. So you brought up Jesus. So I'll just I'll bring you back to him. Um, I've heard scholars refer to Jesus as a radical feminist. I've also heard scholars refer to Jesus as just a man of his day. When you read the gospel texts, when you reflect on what we know of the life of Jesus, what's your take as it relates to his view of patriarchy and and or his view of the women that surrounded him during his time on earth. Taking a a more recent term like feminist and applying it to somebody who lived so long ago is always a bit complicated. Um, But if we we think of a feminist as somebody who advocates for the equality of people of all genders and the rights and freedom of people of all genders, then yeah, I think Jesus would totally fit into that category. Um, Hmm. I mean, I think of the time where he was at a dinner party hosted by a powerful man um, and all of the men who think that they're very powerful and important, you know, get together and talk about theology and important things. And then a woman who's thought of as a sinner interrupts their dinner party and makes a scene and anoints Jesus' feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair. And this is this very shocking, scandalizing thing. And what does Jesus have to say about that? He commends her for her faith. He affirms her and kind of affirms her power and her agency and the courage that it took to approach him in that moment and basically says she's got things right and all of you self-important men do not have things right. So, yeah, I think there's there's moments like that in scripture that are really powerful. Um, I think sometimes we also just forget um, that there were female disciples. There were women who followed Jesus around to hear him teach and to learn how they could do the same. Um, and I think of the the moment with Mary and Martha, where Martha is doing all of the gendered female things um, that people thought that women were supposed to be doing and preparing food and all that. And those were good things. Um, but Jesus affirmed her sister, Mary, who had chosen what might have been considered the masculine role to sit at Jesus' feet and hear him teach so that she could mm-hmm. one day teach too. And Jesus said, mm-hmm. this is a good thing that Mary has chosen, even if it goes against all of the gendered notions that people might have. So, Yeah. And did you mention uh, um, it was also women who supported his ministry, correct, from yeah. a financial perspective? 
which I, yeah, totally. you know, I, I sort of glossed over that maybe for the first 35 years of my life. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's like rich women. The only way <laughs> Jesus had a ministry was because of women. Mm. And, you know, it was woman who gave birth to God. I, I, I just find it fascinating that we, we miss some of those some of those nuanced perspectives that may not be mm. completely written out in, you know, the the literature or the text. Um, I, I I will say that I, I have been really impacted by the work of Sister Joan Chittister and her mm. work on feminism. And I just kind of pulled up this quote of hers and as it relates to how patriarchy limits not only the view of women, the role of women, but also limits the spiritual condition and power of women. And this is from her book, A Heart of Flesh. As she writes, it is precisely women's experience of God that this world lacks. A world that does not nurture its weakest does not know God, the birthing mother. A world that does not preserve the planet does not go, know God, the creator. A world that does not honor the spirit of compassion does not know God the Spirit, God the lawgiver, God, God the judge, God the omnipotent being, have consumed Western spirituality and in the end shriveled its heart. And that, that kind of points me to maybe another question about the culture at large. I was coming home from work today and there was a truck in front of me and it was driven by a white male, and he had a couple of bumper stickers on his car. And, of course, one was for Trump. One was uh, something about God and guns, and the other one was pro-life. And it was very much this posture, right? He was projecting this hyper-masculinity. Mm -hmm. And it feels like that patriarchy has not only ingrained itself in a lot of our churches, it has created a, a system of domination that I mentioned earlier of, mm -hmm. of raw power, of strength, of militarism, of violence, of um, all the things that we associate sort of with American culture, right? Like our, our stars or yeah. football players that are raw and rugged and I don't really know what I'm asking here, but but it just feels like that that maybe with the quote from Joan and this sense that patriarchy is is actually evil. It's it's an oppressive mm -hmm. system. Um, can you help me make sense of that from a cultural level? And and how do we how do we combat that that notion of violence and domination and aggression are are good and submission and kindness and compassion and creativity and gentleness are bad, especially when it comes to men. Right. Yeah. We get into this vicious cycle where we have some of those gentler, more creative types of characteristics cast as feminine and then devalued. And that just kind of perpetuates itself um, mm -hmm. with women being devalued and then those characteristics being devalued and um, they're especially bad if men embody them. Yeah, yeah, it's a very vicious cycle. Um, and I think, uh, as Sister Joan, I think, was getting at, all of that is tied to our view of God. So mm. I think I would approach it from that angle um, mm. of when we have this hyper-masculine view of God, all of those things follow. Like, we think that it's good for us to be hyper-masculine, to be violent, to be angry, all those things that we might picture God as, as this kind of distant authority figure. 
Um, and I'm thinking here of Christina Cleveland's book, God is a Black Woman. I feel like she yes. spells this out really nicely. So I'd recommend that. Um, but yeah, I think that um, part of our journey of trying to undo some of these toxic things and some of these systems of domination involves learning to see God in different ways, learning to see some of the feminine images of God that exist in scripture. Um, and reflecting on the ways that the characteristics of God might feel different if we imagine God as a mother, God as a non-binary parent, um, God with feminine hands. Um, that's a quote from uh, Kelly Nikandiha's book, Defiant, picturing God as a midwife, which I think is a beautiful mm. image. Um, so yeah, when we, you know, I think that very few of us would say, I think God is an old white man. Um, but when we go to church and all of the language language for God is masculine and all of the char- characteristics that we emphasize are stereotypically masculine, we get kind of this image in our head, whether or not we want it. Um, and it can feel very uncomfortable to take a journey into referring to God as she or her or as our mother, as our parent. Uh, but I think we need to explore all of that because I think it really gets at something about the things that we value, the things that we think are good and aspire to. Yeah. You know, I've started praying to God, our mother, in a in a really dark season of my life, in a time where I was just falling apart emotionally and and mentally, spiritually, behaviorally, and I didn't feel safe praying to this white dude in the sky, this omnipotent yeah. asshole, frankly, that mm-hmm. we you know tends to to come about. And my priest at the time gave me a prayer that he had written that he uses in his monastic community that referenced God, our Mother, and our Creator, and our Sustainer. And even the language was so much softer. It was more gentle. And it allowed me to approach God not from a, oh, hey, like, I hope you don't hate me and you're going to spank <laughs> right. me, right. to, no, you are my creator and my my sustainer, my my comforter. And this gentle, kind God emerged in my subconsciousness and, and in my um, imagination from that. Hmm. How have you experienced the the divine feminine from your perspective, either either professionally or or spiritually or or, or personally? That's been really powerful for me too. Um, I, I tell a story in the book of um, probably the first time, at least as far as I recall, um, hearing a worship song address God as She. Um, hmm. And that was in seminary at our weekly chapel service. And one of the worship team leaders had actually rewritten the lyrics of His Eyes on the Sparrow to be Her Eyes on the Sparrow. And it wasn't just that, that this worship leader had rewritten. It was a lot of lyrics just to be more, like you said, more more creative, more of kind of, yeah, God, our, our sustainer, the one who walks with us and is present with us. And um, that was just really... Um, just really moving to me when I first mm. heard that. Um, mm-hmm. Her eye is on the sparrow. Like, yeah, just that image of God watching o- over us and the ways that that can take shape um, in a feminine way. Um, and I think it's been a journey to be more comfortable with that over the years. Um, 
I think I'm kind of at a point now where when I only hear masculine images and language for God, like that's also, that's become jarring. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it took, took a journey to become more comfortable. Um, but it's been a really good one. It's been a powerful one. I think, um, you know, sometimes when the ways that we think of God and relate to God just don't feel like they're working anymore, um, we need new ways and new images. And that's been something that's been new and good for me when it felt like some of those old views of what God was like fell apart. And I think it said miracles and other reasonable things. Sarah Bessie kind of reflects on God as mother and asks this question that I think is really powerful, um, which is how would God like to mother me today? Oh, wow. How would God wow. like to mother me? Yeah. <laughs> so I think about that often. Um yeah, not because mothers and fathers have to or always do engage with their children in different ways, but I think like whatever image I have of a mother, like I need to apply that to God. Like I need those characteristics in God. And mm. um, it's a way of kind of caring for ourselves, right? Like um, if our image of a mother is somebody who's tough but caring, um, I think that's beautiful. Just thinking what would what would that kind of God want for me today? Not a demanding God, not a punishing God, but a welcoming, loving, but also no nonsense, I think is how Sarah puts it, mm-hmm. God. Yeah. Well, you know, I've started to do that. I'm Episc- We're a Episcopalian. And so, of course, every Sunday we say the Nicene Creed. And when it comes to the mm-hmm. part about the Holy Spirit, I've replaced um, he pronouns with she, you know, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, she is worshiped and glorified. She has spoken through the prophets. And I I realize that's a little bit of a subtle change, but it also invites us into seeing God not just from those male pronouns and, and envisioning mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that, that male. And it's kind of funny. I, every once in a while, the person in front of me will sort of turn and be like, bro, like, <laughs> you, you, what are you, you got that wrong. And I'm like, no, I don't necessarily think I got it wrong. Like, meta, you know, all, all our language about God is metaphorical anyways. Right, and right. if we're okay with calling God, he, we, we also need to make room for calling God she as well. It's, it's totally. ludicrous that we've already gendered God and somehow God is, you know, always a dude. So, yeah. Right. I mean, if we believe that male and female are made in God's image, then yeah, God is a she right. as much as God is a he. Totally. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, even saying that, even for, for some progressives in the evangelical community, they're like, oh, no. Well, that's that's a bridge too far. I'm like, well, <laughs> no, no, not so much. All right, I want to pivot and maybe end on a, a, a pretty controversial question. Um, we've been talking about patriarchy as it relates to our spirituality and our churches and even our homes. I want to talk about it from a political perspective and, and really get your take on this because I am torn as to how to respond. We, we, you know, we live in a post-row world where women's mm-hmm. rights are being rolled back on the daily. And to come out in, quote, favor of abortion, even in some progressive circles, is controversial. It can get you befriended. Um, what do you suggest to followers of Jesus who are pursuing an egalitarian way of life, who are working to support and defend the marginalized, how do we respond to this uh, 
movement that we're seeing on a national level, on a local level, on a state level, where patriarchy is now being ingrained in our politics to strip women from bodily autonomy, from the rights to health care. What is your response uh, to that? From a, from a Christ-like perspective. As Christians in these times, I think that we are called and invited by God to, um, to hear women's stories and to hear women's experiences, to not turn away from the ways that anti-abortion laws cause suffering and even death for women. Um, I think we're, we need to not turn a blind eye to the impact that these laws have on women's lives. Um, I think these things can be complicated. I think a lot of us, including me, grew up and thought for a long time that if you're Christian, you're pro-life, and that's part of what that means. So I think there's also a lot of mm. just kind of humility and openness that we need to embody and be open to changing our minds, open to admitting that we were wrong about things. This is something that I was wrong about for mm. a long time. Um, yeah, so I think I think we're called to move toward respecting women's full personhood and women's agency to make decisions that are best for them and their families. Mm, I love that. It is. It's it's a hard conversation. It's a hard thing to figure out where you stand. And I also think we need to give ourselves grace to realize, as you said, like, oh, I've been yeah. wrong about this, and it's okay for me to change. It's okay for me to have a nuanced perspective mm -hmm. on this. Um, all right. Well, I'll ask you a last question because I don't want to end on something so tragic yeah. as, as post-Roe world. When you look to the future of the church and when you look to the future of a more egalitarian world, what gives you hope? The ways that I see even the feminist movement changing over time gives me hope in terms of um, hmm. as somebody who is white and feminist, I feel like there's a lot to unpack in terms of the ways that white feminists have often pursued a certain kind of liberation or equality for a certain kind of white woman. Um, and I think, I think, you know, I see more and more women um, kind of recognizing that feminism is a lot broader than that, um, that if we're doing it right and really trying to dismantle patriarchy, we're also dismantling racism, uh, white supremacy, ableism, all the other different mm -hmm. systems that are intertwined with it. So it gives me hope to see more people thinking about these things. Um it gives me hope to just try to listen to women of color who are leading in these spaces and follow their lead. Um, and I think it's an exciting time in the sense that the more that we recognize that all of these oppressive systems are intertwined together, the more that we can work on dismantling them together. Um, so I, I do mm. think that, you know, it's, I mean, there are also people who are opposing these things and, and kind of digging in their heels. But I do think that more and more people are recognizing that this is the work that we need to do. And I think it's an exciting time to do that work together, both in the church and more broadly. Mm -hmm. I love that. And your book, Nice Churchy Patriarchy, attempts to do that. Mm -hmm. So for folks that are interested in that, as well as connecting with you online, where can we point them? 
I blog pretty regularly at lizcoolidgejenkins.com. Um, and there's also some book info there. I also recently just started a Substack, um, So you can find me there too. Hey, we got one too. Hey. We, we should be friends. <laughs> Let's be friends. Yeah, this is new to me. So. Yeah. Um, and then the book is available on Amazon, bookshop.org and, and barsandnoble.com. Awesome. All right. So that's nice, churchy, patriarchy. Grab that. And we'll connect on Substack because uh, it can be a lonely place. Mm-hmm. Well, Liz, thank you so much. I appreciate this conversation. We have not had the chance to talk specifically about patriarchy in a long time. If you're a listener of the show, you can go all the way back to season one where we dive into it. But this has been an, an incredible refresher, as well as just a reminder that man, this is not going away and it hasn't gone away and it is still impacting individuals, men and women, uh, people of color. And as you said, it is connected to a whole lot of other stuff that leads to a hierarchical system of oppression. So thanks so much. And I look forward to continuing the conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you need more resources to guide your spiritual journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, resources, and our free ebook on faith deconstruction. And before we go, will you consider joining us on Patreon? Your partnership allows us to continue creating this sacred space for seekers like you. By becoming a patron, you gain early access to each podcast episode, as well as premium content, and an exclusive invitation to join our monthly online community. Simply sign up at patreon.com slash holyheretics. See you next time.